0: This is episode 202 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're finishing up Men's Roundup 2017 with John Lynch. This is session four from Sunday morning. Sacred, 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 sacred. Okay, I want to. I don't want to hit a Texas leaguer. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, So good. Will you guys, will you travel with me now? Can we make that agreement? This is beautiful, beautiful man. Beautiful. So, raise your hand. I can't see it because of the lights, but just, I'll believe in faith that I'll see it. Raise your hand if you're going down this hill with more hope and joy in your hearts than when you came up. Gosh. I that's the—that's the living Christ inside of you, my friends. Yeah, boy, that's right. You are right. If you get nothing else out of this time, you're right on time. You—you you, you know, we—some of us were raised with this verse out of Ezekiel, and we believed it was for us. Oh, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can trust you? Oh, the wicked heart, my wicked heart. You know what? That's no longer true about you. The moment you got a new heart, Christ in you, it is an insane thing to say that my heart is wicked. Because my heart is Christ in me. He's not over there, there. He's not up there. Yes, he is, but he's in me heart. I'm fused with him. I'm not a saved sinner. I'm a saint who is vitally fused with him. And his arm is around me and he calls me righteous and holy. That's who you are. And nobody, nobody can take it away from you. Well, before I leave, I have to read another story. 1966, people have been talking about baseball. I had no choice but to do this one. Among my six favorite days on this planet is the one Dave Barrows and I spend in the summer of 66. We decided to hitchhike from our home to Dodger Stadium in LA. We never thought twice of any danger. I mean, we were, after all, we were 14. I have no memory of how we got there, but vivid technicolor memory of every single moment once inside the stadium. The Dodgers were playing the Giants in a double-header. One price, two games, three times the magic. But what we could afford was, well, up in the top row of the stadium. When we finally made our way to our seats, neither of us could speak for a while. We were out of breath. We were deeply disappointed. Far below, the players looked like ants in uniforms. Several minutes into trying to convince ourselves that these seats would work, we decided to take a huge gamble. We had no game plan, but we would find a way down into the bottom section. The stadium was packed, but we had to try. Even if we could only watch up close for an inning or two, it would be worth spending the rest of the day in a basement office with security guards. (laughs) We eventually conned our way down to the entrance to the bottom level. We didn't see anyone asking for tickets, so we started our way down towards seats that our own parents could never afford. And I think we would have made it. Except this kindly-looking older man wearing a Dodger blue straw hat called out, "Gentlemen, uh, excuse me, um, one moment, please." We made the mistake of looking back. <laughs> he gestured towards while he's standing. Hey, may I see your tickets, please? Um. Well, so I just, um See, our parents are down there, and Dave took over. Yeah, they've got our tickets. Uh, We told them we'd be right back. Gentlemen, I see your tickets. Um, We each pulled out our tickets, uh, knowing that our dream was over. And he took them, and he looked at them. Then he looked at us. Then he leaned his head way, way back <laughs> to where our seats were. Then he looked back at the tickets. Then he looked at us again. He made that, that sucking sound that older people make with their teeth and lips when they're, when they're considering something. He mumbled something to himself, and then very seriously, he spoke, follow me, and we did. And he walked us down into the great bowl, past the wealthy people, past the players' wives, past the scouts, past the owners, all the way down directly behind the third base dugout. The Dodgers dug out. Without smiling, he looked at our tickets. He cleaned off our chairs. And then he said clearly and loudly so everyone can hear. Gentlemen, I believe uh, these are your seats. <laughs> by, the, by the time we sat down and stared and realized what had happened, we turned and he was gone. We watched a double header from where God sits when he watches the Dodgers play. Yeah. Koufax pitched one of the games. sad KOFAX! koufax Maury Wills stole a base, Willie Davis dove to make a one-handed catch in center, we bought Dodger dogs and frozen malts, it was a bright sunny California day, we took off our shirts and swung them over our heads, we cheered like drunken sailors on leave, we listened to our hero Vin Scully echoing from transistor radios throughout the stadium. We'd call out the names of players and they'd wave back. Wes Parker tipped his hat to us. We chased down foul balls. They were truly six of the finest hours of my entire life. Afterwards, we waited and we got autographs from Willie Davis and Bill Singer and Al Ferrara. For 13-plus years, life had been methodically teaching me that the actual event never met the anticipated expectation. But, But this day, this day exceeded all anticipation. The only thing keeping it from being more perfect was the setting sun sending us onto the freeway on ramp and back into our normal lives. And I imagine Jesus saying, even though I didn't know him yet, I imagine him saying in anticipation for that day when we would become dearest of friends, I imagine him saying that day, "Ah." so John, I don't know who's happier this day, you or me. I've seen this one coming for a long time. I lined up Koufax to pitch for you. That was no small feat. He was, uh, he was scheduled to face Marshall on Sunday. I had to give Claude Osteen a stiff shoulder so Walt Osteen would be forced to move Koufax up a day. Now, I know you've already discovered much of life isn't as spectacular or satisfying as the anticipation. I've watched this break your heart. It will serve to draw you to me one day, but I've built this longing into you for a world that does not disappoint. Today, I just wanted to see you enjoying this life as completely as your being can hold. I love you a lot, kid. I can't wait till we meet. In the meantime, most of the day today is going to be fine. You're going to throw a couple of no-hitters in high school. Your girlfriend will be prettier than Petula Clark. I've got a trip planned where you and a friend drive up the coast of San Francisco and your dad's Chevy Nova during college spring break. On that trip, I'll have your car break down near Santa Barbara because I want you to get acquainted with it. See, you're going to live on that beach in Isla Vista during your wandering years when you're running from me. If you're going to run from me, might as well live in a nice area. Um, guys the things that we've talked about up here i i don't want to ever sell you anything i hate that i hate hucksterism i hate all of it but we have a class with true face uh, called the high trust culture and it it teaches and embeds and in such a beautiful way through series of videos and online discussions and course it powerfully teaches you how to live this life and reminds you how to live this life. And so anyways, we're going to have a sign-up sheet back at the books, and Sam, my friend, will be there to um, just, if you want to sign up, it's just, they give you a little ditties, they'll tell you about the movie, they'll tell you about this course that we have coming out where you could be a facilitator in your own home and how to get trained for all that good stuff but it just puts you in contact with us. We won't sell you anything, we won't do any of that. But uh, anyways, that sign-up sheet will be back there. By the way, uh, studies have shown statistics that only 18% of parents can have healthy children without reading this book. (laughs) It's the cure in parents, and I could be wrong, but why would you take the chance? Get this book this book. Um, it starts <laughs> it's, it starts this way. There's a cruel joke that somehow slipped under the door. It goes like this. These children who we waited and longed for have now become our opponents. Opponents we love but ones we now have to manage. It's not supposed to be this way. God gave us children to enjoy endlessly and for them to be able to enjoy us for an entire lifetime. That's why we wrote this book, to learn how to earn our children's trust so we can receive the wonderful transformative privilege of giving our children love, teaching them truth, and providing them guidance. When we discover the truth of the next statement, nearly everything begins to change in the way we parent. Because God's primary goal is earning my trust so he can love me and increasingly mature me and correct my behavior and free my life, I will attempt to offer the same for my child. See, God has done endlessly more than enough to have earned my trust, but he knows that until I actually, practically trust him, very little he desires for me will come to pass. My lack of trust comes from my fear of trust, not his worthiness to be trusted. So, because he loves me so deeply, he continues to reveal himself as trustworthy, breaking down my fears and walls of self-preservation. And as I grow to trust the perfectly trustworthy one, I heal, mature, I become free. That's why David yells out, i taste! Come on, taste and see the Lord's good. He's saying when you're able to see him accurately and trust his intentions for you, oh my, what a, what a marvelous life you're going to have with him. So get the cure and parents, and, and when you do, tell someone that I told you to, and I'll keep my job and it'll be great. Okay, here we go. Last time, last time into Ecclesiastes of Solomon. Come uh, this time to chapter 4, verse 9, and I'll read it to you as we're going. Solomon again, he's, he's been under the tapestry, getting deep in the weeds of threads that make no sense, and then about four times throughout this book, sh- he gets on top and he sees, I get it. Okay, I get it. And this is one of those times. We went through one last night, and this is another one of them tonight. There's a couple more uh, coming later in the book. This guy, who had thousands in his home every single night, but nobody knew him, he finally sees it now. And he's going to use these um, analogies of Mideast travel. And he's going to explain the basis of what he's missed his whole life and it's too late, it feels like, for him to get it back, but he wants you to hear. And God superimposes these words down through the years, all the way through history to get to us. Chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If of them, for if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But, Whoa. Woe, he couldn't use a stronger word, woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Uh, Furthermore, if two lay down together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Jimmy McCarter, he was my best friend. Fourth grade, upland, California. We did everything together. We had more fun together. We laughed. We went into the, we made forts in these, in these little areas before they did development. And we would tell each other truths about us and tell everything. We were best friends. Jimmy McCarter's dad, back in the day, there were no laws or rules about kids, you could do anything. Jimmy McCarter's dad bought boxing gloves for him for Christmas. I mean, just regular boxing gloves. And Jimmy and I would be in his garage boxing each other with boxing gloves. We hit each other in the face over and over and we'd laugh and laugh. We'd pass out, we'd get knocked out. <laughs> Brain damage. Ah! ah! Jimmy McCarter was my best friend. And then one day, his stupid dad says that they're going to move. He has a job in another city. I felt like, wait, you can't move. This is my best friend. We just get another job. (laughs) And nobody inquired of me. And one day, I watched the moving van take my best friend away from me. And something changed inside of me. I I said, no, that will not happen again. Nobody's going to hurt my heart like that. That is not going to happen. From now on in, I will be more careful, and I will guard myself, and that will not happen. And that became a pattern for John Lynch for decades. Um, In The Cure, we we start um, chapter 6, with this, uh, this writing. We were kids. We didn't know any better. We just found each other. We learned to play and dream. We told each other everything and made packs. best friends make. You'll be able to hear Jimmy McCarter and me in this writing. In the confidence of this camaraderie, we risked the deeper woods behind our homes and rode our bikes further into unexplored neighborhoods. We built forts and dens out in the back alley where packs of us would meet to commune, telling and creating stories. Love was assumed. Loyalty and protection were built in. We never went easily into our homes when the streetlights blinked to life. We waited until we were called, and even then, only until our parents shouted our full names. We knew when the front doors closed behind us, the miraculous world where we were best known on our level would be replaced with homework and chores and bathtubs. Oh, gosh, summer was what we imagined heaven to be. We played hard all day and sprawled on our backs in fields, talking easily about everything and anything. It's where we had our first real conversations about girls and about God. We gave unspoken permission for the other to tell hard truth even badly expressed because we were convinced the other had our back. We were too young for relational drama or cliques, and, and if we did get crossways, one glance of acknowledged forgiveness the next morning set us back out into adventures three blocks away. There was little posturing, hardly any deception. None of us knew or cared who was more talented or better looking. Then a best friend moved away or someone stole a baseball card or we split up into rival little league teams or we reached the age when attraction to the opposite sex became a competition. And like a chlorine tablet in a summer pool, those childhood communities of trust and safety and vulnerability gradually dissolved. What didn't dissolve was our need of them Fast forward to now. Wherever you're hearing these words or reading these words, for many looking back means the scattered debris of relationships we thought would always be there now strained, convoluted, and estranged. We invested our hearts and dreams into those relationships. We made pacts that we would always face this life together. Our belief in each other was the was, was push to head deeper into the woods of our grown-up world. Then too many of our friends went away. And almost out of necessity, we grew tougher, guarding our own hearts and commitments, giving ourselves an out. Our homes grew quieter. We learned to focus on what our gifting could accomplish, and slowly, without noticing, we closed ourselves off. We were still funny and talented and insightful, but the this recording is playing in our heads. What happened? Why am I unknown and lonely and lost? Why hasn't this worked out the way I imagined it? So we dig our own trenches and face increasingly complicated life issues alone. We may meet in small groups, but often it's more play acting than authenticity. We show cracks in measures with little intention of allowing anyone to help fill them. Not again, nope, not again, that hurt too much. Not again. It feels too late when we awaken to discover that we learned a theology that fell short of our reality. We learned to place ourselves into comfortable camps or distinguish ourselves from others' religious traditions, but we never learned to live with each other in relationships of grace. one of the most satisfying visible gifts of the room of grace is rediscovering vulnerable, life-giving relationships. We forgot how much we missed them, how much we needed them. So listen to me, it's not too late. That life's still there, and Jesus never left the fort in the alley. He knows others who are missing those relationships too. And he wants to bring them together again. Slide, if you would. So this is a manifesto. A manifesto to the sacred imperative for vulnerable and authentic friendships. An intensely personal demand to reexamine if I've been doing this life largely on my own. Two are better than one, Solomon says, because you're gonna fall and you won't be able to get back up by yourself. Some of you fell. Some of you won't want to get back up. Two are better than one because you're gonna get cold and you won't be able to keep yourself warm. And you will get in danger. Oh, things will threaten literally to tear you apart. It will come at you from so many stinking angles and it will threaten to tear your world apart and you won't be able to protect yourself by yourself solomon says two are better than one now i read that and i go duh two are better than one of course i mean an enchilada and another enchilada is two enchiladas i get it that's i, I can do that math I don't know that we need to put it in Scripture. He's not saying that. He's saying he discovered too late that two is categorically superior to one. Two is to one as success is to failure. Two are better than one because they have a good, literally, morally superior and exponentially healthier return for their labor. It's the word synergy. Synergy, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There's another thought, there's a, there's a rule called the two-horse rule. And you would say, hey, if one horse can pull 700 pounds and another can pull 800 pounds, you might expect, ah, yeah, they can pull 1500 pounds. The two-horse team will pull their own weight plus the weight of their interaction. Yoked together, horses will pull 3000 pounds. That's played out everywhere with you cats. When you dare risk to say, shoot, I don't know how to do this. I don't, Floyd, this is so goofy and so embarrassing, but how, how are we going to do that? How are we going to be friends? And to start to find those people and you find out, oh my gosh, my life is exponentially pulling differently than it was before. Now you take this, Jesus says, Uh, Come to me, everyone who's weary and tired. I'm humble and meek. Take my yoke upon you. It's, It's light. It's easy. And we will pull a ton. Now you take a friendship and you take two men who have decided to allow Christ's yoke upon them and they'll break generational patterns. They'll change the world. Uh, two are better than one only, though, if we can learn to trust each other. Now, see, why would I entrust myself to you? It, it seems so, I'm so self-protective. I learned to be self-protective. Look, I know me better than you know me. I care about me more than you care about me. I think about me more than you think about me. And I see your issues, and i got enough issues without yours. Here's why I need to trust you with me. Next slide. I can't see myself accurately. I was a great director. We used to have a theater production for the gospel. and It was called Sharky Productions. I, I was a great director. There was only one person I couldn't direct, me. I can't see myself accurately. You can see me. My wife can see me accurately. Also, I'm a self-referencing system, and I will deceive myself. And I can't know love without letting you love me. And you can't express, in fact, I'll put on a mask, and I'll think, oh gosh, you're going to love me now. truth is, you'll love my mask, and only my mask gets loved. And you can't express love unless I allow you to. And I, see, I can fall and even not, not even know I'm falling. And I can fall and either can't get up or won't get up. You can draw to me, to him, when I get cold. That's why I need you. And another statement that is true that's so beautiful for me to know. God infuses my humility to risk trusting you. And God doesn't need you to be as smart as me to protect me. You don't need to have magic answers for me. He'll make you wiser for my protection. I just need someone to have my back who gets close enough, who can know my stuff. Gosh, I hated this concept. I hated the thought of teaming up with others because I was talented and I was good at what I did. Do you remember in college when the professor said, "Um, we want you to get with this group of six and work on this project and your grade will be based on how you do as a team? And look at that guy and going, you're stoned. Um, (laughs) You're not going to show up at anything. Uh, And my grades dependent on you. I hated those things. And then I started writing scripts for Sharky, and they were good. And one day along came this guy named Bob Ryan, and he was brilliant. And he said, hey, could I have your script? Would you mind me just toying with it a little bit? And I said, no. I mean, what are you gonna, (laughs) how are you gonna improve that, baby? And (laughs) And he took it, and it came back magical. It was so much better than what I'd written. I went, huh. And that started Sharky Productions and we started writing plays that got used all over the country. I know what you say. I've got God. I trust God. I don't trust humans. And the truth is, he wouldn't write. Jesus would not say I give you this one command, and that's to love each other if he didn't desire to have me be him with flesh on. Love one another. That's I need you and want you to do that with each other. And then Paul says, now come on, you want to fulfill that one command that he gives? Bear one another's burdens. Stay with them. Carry them. It's the only thing I'm asking of you. Put the other religious stuff away. Do that. Love one another. And you got it. The God of the universe. And then he says, I have enlisted some rare and wonderful believers to be your team, our team. And you and I will continue to have our relationship at even greater depths. You need me. You need my love. You need my protection. You need my joy. But it now has to be amplified tangibly with this team that I've assembled. So don't be afraid to begin to risk trusting them. Some will prove unable to stand with you. Let me work that out and stand with you in that pain. Because you know who they are. You'll know who these friends are. They'll be ones that have a similar heart for me. Because there will come a time when you'll fall and you won't be able to get back up. What is falling? Sometimes it's a physical setback or health or loss or grief or pain. Sometimes it's moral failure. Sometimes you'll get hurt relationally and and want to leave the community. Sometimes you'll self-protect and cover up and pull back in your faith. Sometimes you'll believe something false, something deceived, and you can't see it. And sometimes um, you either can't or won't get back up. Sometimes you won't even recognize you're falling. I love what this man 15 years before when he was healthier wrote. He said in Proverbs uh, 24, A righteous man falls seven times and he rises again. Literally seven times, meaning he falls a lot. That's what a righteous man does. He is known as a man who trips and falls a lot. You will know the righteous by this. They will fall a lot. But there's something about them. They rise again. They, someone helps them get up. One of the greatest gifts that I can give to someone I have the privilege to influence is to offer a relational environment where they can fail without shame. An environment where there is the safety to fail creates the greatest safety from failure. Um, If you have a camera, you're gonna wanna take a picture of that because guys, uh, that's our kids. That's our friends, that's our family. So, here you are, you've worked so hard to earn this trust for this moment so that when they need you, you, they'll be able to hear you even if they don't at first want to. So could I bring my friend Sam Hill up, wherever he is, I can't see him. Sam, are you here? Come on up. Um, this is my friend, this is one of my best friends. He is my pastor. Um, He is my big brother. And I want to just say this real quickly so you can hear what this looks like in our relationship. One, I am a mess. (laughs) Sam apparently knows I am a mess. Sam carries wounding. Sam's wounding can cause him to go off the skids. Sam usually cannot tell that he has gone off the skids. Sam is a godly, humble man. Sam knows that I am that I am endlessly for him and that I love him. Sam chooses to trust God completely with Sam. Sam chooses to trust Christ in John a lot with Sam. Not at first, but eventually. Sam's trust of me compels me to be good and wise about Sam. Sam reluctantly trusts me when I suggest to him that he is going off the skids as recently as three weeks ago and Sam is protected from harming himself and others and we get the best of Sam and in doing this I get to protect my little funky community called Open Door Fellowship by protecting Sam it's a pretty good life Secondly, you're going to get cold and you won't be able to get yourself warm. (laughs) Mark Williams once said to me, this guy that I was telling you about earlier this morning, this man's man, uh, somehow we brought up the conversation. Hey, if you were going to freeze to death, or you could spoon with another man, and you could live the night through, Mark's first answer was... um, I've heard that it feels really warm right before you freeze to death. <laughs> and then I told him, for this to work though, they say the study says that you have to get down to your skivvies. And Mark says, so we freeze to death. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good night. Yeah. Here's what this means. I can't Keep myself warm. I can only keep you warm. And you can only keep me warm. In the process of giving you what I can't give myself. I'm kept warm. I can't keep myself warm. I can only keep you warm. And you can only keep me warm. And in the process of giving you what I can't give myself. I'm kept warm. You know what coldness is. Times of distance or sense of abandonment or that that not knowing why you're so far from god it's usually with god and this is not a time for acquaintances there's a friend that stays closer than a brother solomon wrote that too what gets me cold hiddenness hiddenness gets me so cold wounding gets me cold world events where i can't figure it out and i lose hope and i don't see god in it i That gets me cold. Disappointment with God causing me to self-protect. That gets me cold. How crazy. God uses you to bring me back to him. How beautiful. Slide. In the same way that you tell me who I am to get back up, you remind me of who he is to bring my heart back to warmth with him. third you're going to get in danger and you won't be able to protect yourself a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart inherent in that statement is this there's something trying to tear us apart our community our families our relationships everything that you've put your heart to there's an enemy and he's there's like 11 doors and he's trying each one where am i going to get in I will get in I, there's an, and it says only with us together only with us standing together will we be kept from being torn apart a community protects families Your sons and daughters are protected by having a trusted community that is not expendable, where it's not easy to leave, where I will be revealed, where I will be found out and find out that I will be loved more by those who know the worst about me. Those kind of communities where it's not hidden, where it's not fake, where it's authentic, the evil one doesn't know how to get in. A chord of three strands. It's beautiful. I love when he uses three because it's a picture of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is, is that that undergirds us. And that's why I say, you guys, we have access to an endless variety of resources. You can get me on tape. You can hear my messages. You can hear these guys play all day long and it's right and you should and it's wonderful. But I'm not your home I'm not your community. I'm not your posse. I want you to be, but you apparently will not travel with me. (laughs) Only in a home where I experience commitments of love and trust, where it's not easy for me to leave, even when I get hurt, only there are strands formed to protect me and my family. And that's why the local church... That's why this community, that's why you guys keep doing this stupid, difficult, inefficient, clumsy, weird, beleaguered thing called church. That's why you keep the doors open. It's why you keep doing it. It's because only here is a quarter, three strands able to be lived out. Look at these three guys right there. Their commitments are beautiful and powerful. Their commitments of love to each other are powerful. Now you put the Trinity of God undergirding those commitments, and they're unsaleable. You guys, this is not a game. This is not a rehearsal. This is my life, and I failed at it so many times because I hid away and I protected, self protected. You guys, just by the very thought that you took the risk, I talked to one guy, he said, I had 10 different excuses. I kept making it up in my mind to not come up here to round up. I would have failed. I would have blown it. I'm so glad I came. The fact that you're here means you guys are this cohesive core of what is going to play this future out in such a beautiful way in this neck of the woods. I am so excited and delighted to see what God's about to do with this group of cats yes. and their influence. So I'm going to leave you with this. Gosh, has it been a privilege to be with you. Us as well. <sighs> yes. um, you know that your leaders who run this thing, when I had the stroke, most people asked Is he still as effective a communicator? Should we still have him come? They never asked that. They instead said, What can we do to make Stacy feel safe so that you can come? And I bless you for that. And I pray that I've been a blessing to you in these last couple of days. So let's end with this. October 1972. We are out to dinner this evening. Arlene and I, oh my gosh. Arlene, the most beautiful homecoming queen, prettier than any girl you've ever met. (laughs) Recently, things have not been going well for us, but nothing has prepared me for the words she says to me tonight. John, I think we should break up. She's seen enough. She's known me for six years now. We've been together almost every day. She loves me and deeply enjoys me, but I am too much work. I have not learned how to be secure dating this uncommonly beautiful girl. She has grown weary of defending herself. My insecurity and shame are now disrupting my world at its very core. How hard it must have been for her to prepare to say those words. How long did she know and not tell me, afraid of hurting me? In the moment, I'm not mature enough to tell her how brave she is. Everything that happens next is a frantic blur. I pay the check before our meal arrives and drive her home in the rain. Neither of us speaks a word. There's only the sound of windshield wipers mocking me. I drop her off and I I stare at her one more time before she walks out of my sight. I drive Wildly back to the fraternity. My best friend is not in his room. I bang on his door like a deranged man, yelling at the top of my lungs. Then in my shiny white shoes and dress slacks, I run through the streets of Tempe, moaning out loud, this time, it's it's really over. As long as she was in my world, I could make sense of life. She was not only a girlfriend. Her affirmation and smile were how I knew who I was. And now suddenly I am alone. And another thick layer of shame is being formed on that run. To have someone know me up close for a long, long time, for that person to know the deepest, most real truths about me and to know my dreams and my secrets and my weaknesses and then choose to no longer be with me, to not be enough for that person, where do I go? What will I do with the rest of my life? Who's built to withstand such pain? I discover myself in a park miles away, panting and drenched. The most darkness-defying a human risk a human being can take is to believe, even in such a moment like this, that these next words are true. In my freshly proven shame and sense of failure, I want to turn away from it But to deny, to do so is to deny the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And this part is for you. On my worst day, on my worst day, I am adored and enjoyed clean, righteous, absolutely forgiven, new, acceptable, complete, chosen, able, intimately loved, smiled upon, planned for, protected, continually thought about, enjoyed, cared for, comforted, understood, known completely, given all mercy, all compassion, guarded, matured, bragged on, defended, valued, esteemed, held, hugged, heard, honored, in unity with, favored, enough, on time, lacking nothing, directed, guided continually, never failed, Waited for, anticipated, part of, belonging, never alone. Praised, secure, safe, believed, appreciated. Given all grace, all patience, at peace with, pure, shining, cried over. Grieved with, strengthened, emboldened, drawn kindly to repentance, relaxed with, never on trial, never frowned at, never hit with a two-by-four, at rest in receiving complete access, given gifts, given dreams, given new dreams, continually healed, nurtured, carried, never mocked, never punished, most of my humor enjoyed, not behind, not outside, and given endless affection. It doesn't always feel much like it in the moment. This is the depth of his love. Whether you feel or I feel, we deserve it or not. Deserve has long ago left the building. Father God, we call your name. We do not want to have just done a weekend to do a weekend. Oh God, would you allow this to be lasting? I still speak to six people I met six, seven years ago who say, I just remember when you said, I have a new heart. Oh, God, and they say it transform their direction and their path. Would you allow that to happen for some of these friends up in these front rows, these young ones who have not dug deep grooves? Oh, God, would you let it happen to some of us old seasoned old dogs who have been in this fight for a long time? This precious, sacred band of brothers, I give them to you. In the powerful name above all names, Jesus Christ, amen.